Hello, listeners. I'm Bridget. And I'm Caroline. You are listening to episode number eight of Hearth, Home, and Homicide. Actually, it's episode number nine. Apparently, I can't count early in the morning, but anyway. Hearth, Home, and Homicide is a family production about family murders. My daughter, Caroline, and I narrate each story, and son Andy, son and brother Andy, is our producer. As Caroline and I talk about each family murder, we keep sensitivity for victims and their families in top of mind. Our podcasts do include violence and trauma, so listener discretion is advised. So good morning, Caroline. Good morning. How you doing? Doing pretty good. It's a nice, beautiful Sunday. Yeah. I know you loaned your tent to your brother, Andy, and he and his two sons went to Sun Lake with your tent, and they said, oh, my God, it's a palace compared mm-hmm. to their little Coleman two-person tent. Yeah. I've been uh, campaigning for an RV for a few camping seasons now, so... <laughs> If I can't have my RV, I will get a palace of a tent. <laughs> yeah, that that is a beautiful tent, and um, it it it's big, huge, um, three rooms. So anyway, life's pleasures for most people are the simple things, and uh, today we're going to be calling uh, talking about a guy. Name of our episode is Wolf in Sheep's Clothing, and that's exactly what this killer is. His name is Chris Coleman, and uh, he's a family annihilator, Caroline. He is, to me, the forerunner to the Chris Watts murder. A lot of similarities there, and for some reason, Chris Coleman just creeps me out at least as much as Chris Watts. Um Anyway, he was born on March 20th, 1977. We don't usually label our killer a monster, but I'm going to call him a monster the way every sheep in wolf's clothing or wolf in sheep's clothing is. Um, There's nothing worse than a compartmentalized, a person who has a secret life and is then taking it to the next level I can do anything I want. I'm invincible and I'm entitled to it. So I'm going to take it. And that's exactly what he did. So I'm going to just shorten that and call it a monster right off the bat. Um, He hides his monstrous true self until he plots and schemes a horrific murder. His murderous intention being within him all the time. So he's never not been a wolf. It just came out. In I, an yeah. annihilation of his family, I would agree. So, he the dis, the level of um, play acting towards deceit was kind of shocking, very shocking. Uh, so his parents were both pastors in Chester, Illinois. He was the quietest of three brothers, but he was very serious about religion, going so far as to speak in tongues during the services at his parents' non-denominational church. And this was a fundamentalist church. 
As a kid, Chris didn't like uh, hunting game with other family members. So he was he had a soft heart, allegedly, and yet he joined the Marine Corps. So our killer, Chris Coleman, is giving off some conflicting messages about who he really is very early in his life. And I don't know, maybe he doesn't know for sure, or maybe he does, and he's just hiding out. Yeah, that's a tough one, because maybe his learning to hide and be deceitful is really, it's all happening at the same time, right? I mean, he's recognizing maybe the thoughts I'm really having and the way I really want to be aren't, people wouldn't want that. So I'm going to do these other things that seem to make people happy when I do them, right? It's this early development of give the people what they want. Yeah. And, you know, I did grow up in the South and I did go to many, many, many tent revivals and I did witness some speaking in tongues. And, you know, I asked somebody at some point in my life, you know, is there a glossary for what these people are actually saying? Because, you know, I can't understand a word they're saying. And I learned then that no one can decipher anybody's speaking in tongues. So in other words, you can make it up. It's the dramatic presentation of the speaking in tongues. And here's a child, the why, the uh, the kid of two uh, preachers speaking in tongues and becoming known for his high religiosity sensibilities. And I'm thinking, okay, uh, that might be no sacrilegious uh, thoughts in my head at all. I'm not, I'm not uh, pushing back on religion. I'm just saying for him, if he got praise for something that he was sort of uh, trying out or experimenting with very early, then he's just going to keep on doing that. That's right. That's what we all do. And then you develop coping strategies within that. Oh, yeah. So he met his wife in a canine training event in Texas in 1997. Uh, this was going to be his future wife, Sherry. She and Chris both were military police, Chris in the Marines and Sherry in the Air Force. Chris took Sherry home to meet his parents, but he introduced her as just a friend who needed a ride. Huh. A few days later, Chris called his parents to tell them that actually Sherry and he had just gotten married. So it turned out also that Sherry was pregnant. So to, according to everything I read about this case, Caroline, Chris's mom, Connie, blamed everything Chris ever did on Sherry. Everything. Believing that she tricked her son, Chris, into marriage. That Jezebel. Oh, my uh. God. What a convenient way of thinking. <laughs> Poor Sherry. <laughs> I mean, it takes two to tango. And everybody knows that. And it's been that way since, you know, biblical times. So it's not Sherry's fault any more than it's Chris's fault. But I, what I find most strange is the timeline and pattern with which he's going to reveal this, this stuff to his parents. His whole life must have been like that, you know, where he's hiding everything from them and falsifying things, right? Oh, so yeah. This is this is, but this is just the first time his mom sees it now. That we know of, yes. That we know, yeah, you're right. After both leaving the military and getting married and starting a family, Chris went to work for a well known, highly successful televangelist, born again Christian named Joyce Meyer. 
Now, uh, even I know about Joyce Meyer, and she's a perf- she's very good speaker. She's a great storyteller. I don't really have a complaint about Joyce Meyer. You know, she's doing what she does and what she was probably born to do. But I do want to mention that Chris's family knew Joyce Meyer, and they are the ones that helped him get a job in the general security division of her company. Uh, He then became Joyce Meyer's personal security guard. He went to multiple countries with her, different conferences and so forth every year. He made over $100,000 per year, Caroline, and this is back in the early 90s. That's a lot of smack. That's a lot, a lot of jack. Okay. So. Well, and and fun. Look at all that travel. I mean, I know it's dangerous. I'm sure it was genuinely dangerous, but this sounds like a very cool line of work. I think it is. It's a very good paying job. And I'm sure that he did not have to pay for any of his food, room, board, or anything. Of course, he's having to pay that for his family, but not for himself and his flights all over the world. Meanwhile, Sherry became a stay-at-home mom. She was a community service worker that was very well regarded in the community. She gave heavily of her time and money, money Chris was earning through his work. Everyone who spoke of Sherry before and after her death said that she was devoted to a life of service to her community and beyond. And she herself went on missions and put on auctions and other events to raise money for the church. And during that time, she had a second child. The Coleman family was now Chris and Sherry with two adorable boys. And I I mean that. I mean, if you look at their pictures, they are just the sweetest little boys. And, uh, you know, Garrett and Gavin were their names. The couple lived in Columbia, Illinois, which is right outside St. Louis, where the ministries of Joyce Meyer had their headquarters. So now Columbia apparently is very upscale, Caroline, and it had a very low crime rate. In fact, a Columbia police officer lived across the street from Chris Sherry and their two boys. I think that's wonderful. And I'm also thinking about a serial killer investigation that is going on right now that has to do with the Long Island, uh, Long Island serial killer. And, you know, the neighborhood that this arrested and charged serial killer lives in is similar to this. A lot of cops, a lot of firefighters in that neighborhood, just an upscale kind of middle-class neighborhood. So, you know, safety is relative. You, you, You never know. And here comes this neighborhood called Columbia about to find that out. So in fall of 2008, Sherry and Chris's marriage was reportedly on the rocks. Sherry was basically a single mother of two boys and sh- who wanted to be with their father. I feel like they probably blamed her that, that they couldn't do that. Yeah, it's tough. You know, kids, kids are just going to be, all of that emotion is new to them and they don't know what to do and you're their parent and especially the mom. So yeah, they're probably mad at her in some ways. She's well, she's the only disciplinarian stuff. around and right. she's picking the food they eat. So and the whole routine and it's, there's yeah, no other absolutely. boys and yeah. For Making sure. them comb their hair, you know, yeah. get their shoes on the right foot. 
So Chris was, you know, gallivanting around with the Joyce Meyer Ministries all over the globe. And Chris was very angry that Sherry was so busy and that she was fundraising and doing community service that was costing the family a little bit of money. And um, he did not like that at all. And then what happened during this period of discord is that Sherry told Joyce Meyer's son, who she knew, about the marital problems that they were having. Chris didn't love her anymore. And Sherry asked the son of Joyce Meyer to ask his mom, who is Chris's boss, to talk with Chris. So Chris was brought in for a face-to-face meeting with Joyce Meyer. And Chris told her that Sherry was super controlling. He could do nothing to please her. And Joyce told Chris to go to Christian marriage counseling with Sherry. And so, of course, you know, they did. Okay, so now to me, I'm not familiar with a church situation where, or an employment situation where they kind of are entangled And then you would go to the son of your friend's husband's boss, who is also the CEO of the company that bears her name. That is very foreign to me. It's some blurred lines, some very blurred lines. And telling a person what kind of counseling they need to get, uh, having a boss tell you, go get Christian marriage counseling Mm -hmm. with Sherry, not telling him he can go get it alone, choose your own therapist. It doesn't matter to me. I will pay for it, you know, but that's what happened here. Um, no, it's not a cult. Um, but it feels like, uh, encroachment on that kind of, does Joyce Meyer have a little bit too much power over her employees' personal lives and religious beliefs? Right. I guess that that's allowed. Anyway, we soon I just cre- want to note for the audience, you know, we both work in the public sector where that is just not acceptable. But private companies, we don't know what you do. Apparently, you can get into the more prescriptive kind of um recommendation. Well, that rings a bell with me because I have heard, like I heard from my brother who uh, was a horticulturalist. He has passed away now, but uh, he became a college professor. But in his youth, he worked for um, Park Seed Company as, you know, someone who had a degree in horticulture and agronomy and that kind of thing. And, um, he left that company. And when I asked him, geez, why'd you leave that company? You know, because he worked for Wayside Gardens where they had some very choice kind of rare plants. And gee, I I thought you would never leave that company. He said, yeah, well, they're family owned, Bridget. Mm, And when you are working for a family owned business and you are not family, you have to pretend like you are in their extended family. And I just got, you know, I'd had that it up be here precarious. with precarious. Yeah, it can be precarious because you are ultimately not in the family. So, I mean, th- this is a similar structure where Chris has gotten into, no, it's not a cult, but is a prescriptive way of life. So if you're not meeting the criteria, I mean, be no different than police academies or halfway houses. You know, you have to meet certain criteria to be welcome to stay there. 
right? And participate. Yeah. I wouldn't do it, but um, I'm retired, so I have the luxury of saying that if I were starving, I would. There you go. You know, that, that, so here, here you have, I mean, you know, if you, if it's life or death, would you go work for somebody who was going to try to organize your life? Yeah. Until I had my feet on the ground. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Soon Chris was telling the counselor that everything was wonderful again. Sherry was telling her friends in text messages that Chris is two-faced. And in fact, he was treating her like dirt in private. In fact, on the rare occasion that Chris had sex with Sherry, she was told she had to not face him because Chris said the only way that he would have sex with her is if she didn't face him because she was so unattractive, which for my for our listeners, that is a lie. She was it's a beautiful. It's a lie, and it's, it's also abuse, just in case anyone's unclear oh, about yeah. that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so wrong. After sex, he told her, now don't you go thinking that I love you just because we had sex. I do not love you. That's so abusive and cruel. Chris Coleman needed to make life miserable for Sherry so that she would file for divorce. If in the Joyce Meyer televangelist mega business, an employee might not lose their job if their spouse demanded a divorce. Aha! Based on this, Chris didn't consider filing for divorce because he would be fired for instigating a divorce. That's not weird. If- I'm if sorry. not, if Sherry did, though, that's why he's being so mean to her. Right. He needs her to do it. Oh. Yeah, something's going on. In fact, you know, right about this time that he's becoming the king of two-faced assholes, uh, something very strange happened. Joyce Meyer re- began receiving a particular type of death threat. She regularly started receiving death threats, especially in other countries. She regularly received death threats, is what I'm trying to say. This was not new, that she would receive a death threat, especially in other countries and in some parts of the U.S., But and protecting Joyce Myers and sometimes getting her out of tense situations was part of the security that Chris was involved in. Her message was a born-again, fire-and-brimstone kind of evangelical evangelism evangelism sorry i can't that woke that word never comes out of my throat right anyway that was over the top that that was over the top for a lot of people so she was used to getting threats but these new threats were in writing Mm -hmm. threatening joyce meyer that if she didn't stop preaching her bullshit her quote unquote this was in the letter her security guy, Chris Coleman, would be murdered as well as his family. Okay, Caroline. It's too specific. <laughs> and there was a misspelling in the hateful letters of the word opportunity. Instead of, instead of spelling opportunity the way it's supposed to be spelled, uh, this was spelled O-P-P-U-R-T-U-N-I-T-Y. So somewhat phonetically. Opportunity. <laughs> Yeah, per treatmenty. You know, if you're going to be a criminal and you're going to start doing this stuff, look up the words that you. Thank you. Because if it's more than one syllable, in the age of of you know uh, autocorrect, this is well into auto. Anyone past the age of the '90s, like you know how to look this up. <laughs> Not only that, but you know. <laughs> He worked in cybersecurity as, you know, as well as physical security. So 
uh, we're talking about a stupid wolf in sheep's clothing on top yeah. of everything else. Not and when I say stupid, to... I don't think misspelling is stupid. I think it's very easy to do, and I do it all the time. But yeah, be, according not, to my computer, we're that not into highlights deceit. the word. Yeah. Well, and we're not interested in deceiving. If we were, we would go the extra mile to spell check our own work. I mean, you know what I mean? Oh, <laughs> I'm yeah. Be a criminal. I'm going to try to be better at it than some why other does he, people. Why doesn't he just lick the envelopes with his own saliva? Right. <laughs> After several of these letters to Joyce Meyer, a letter was placed, not mailed, but placed inside Chris and Sherry's mailbox. This was very scary to Chris and Sherry because this meant that the letter writer was not just threatening Chris's life and the life of his family, but now it looks like the letter writer knows exactly where Chris and his family lives. Well, that would be scary. Yeah, it would. A camera had been set up by the police officer across the street from the Coleman's, but the person who put the letter in the mailbox was not caught on that camera. Mm-hmm. It's very strange that Chris Coleman was the one being threatened to try to get Joyce Meyer to stop preaching. So what I think that is so convoluted that as to be ridiculous. Anyway, there was another security guard posted to the same detail as Chris, and he wasn't getting any threats. Yeah. So it was another, just Chris. Another oops on the details there, Chris. <laughs> you got to yeah. be pretty you, thorough. You know, I just want to pause for a moment and just re- have a recollection of how many times, Caroline, you and I in discussions and in our podcast, how many times have we talked about how narcissistic people are psychopaths, um, sociopaths, these kinds of people have very little or to no insight into how they're being perceived by other people. By other people. I agree. They have no clue. Well, in fact, I think they have inflated views. Like they, they think, oh yeah, they totally bought that. Or like, God, I'm so, I'm, I scare myself. I'm so, like, I think that they are patting themselves on the back quite a bit. Well, yeah, they can't imagine that any thought that would come into their head might be inferior, but for research that they could do. And um, (laughs) then they have the handicap of thinking there's no possible researcher ever in the uh, pantheon of humanity that would have more intellect than I do. That's just what, that's just the uh, game that they're playing. So anyway, and, uh, So then it happened. Chris was off to the gym early on the morning of May 5th, 2009. He tried calling Sherry during his workout and sent her some texts, but he didn't hear back. Worried, he asked the police officer across the street to go check on his family, please. That officer found the horrific scene of Sherry, Gavin, and Garrett dead. And the entire house had been spray painted with red inside every room with phrases reflecting the threats that had been coming to Joyce Myers. And this officer immediately called 911. Shortly after that, Chris arrived, and then right behind him by seconds were the first responders. So you can just see this scene, Caroline. First, the one police officer goes over. And luckily, there was a window that was easy to get open. And then I think he may have also found that the door was unlocked. I mean, you know, you got, it's almost like, you know, okay, if nobody's home, we want to make sure that the police can come in and find out if there's any 
graffiti and dead bodies in the house. Well, well, and I actually think it's really odd that you called your neighbor. Like you're you're calling your wife all morning. She's not answering. And your decision is to call your neighbor to have him go over there first. Knowing he's a cop. I just kind of find it too convenient. I mean, as everything stacks up, it's all just a little too convenient. Like he was attempting to play off all of these components he already had in his life. Like the Absolutely. It's Brilliant though he is in his own mind, Caroline. I mean, this opportunity to shine was really right there for his opportunity. <laughs> Strangely, although why is that word in there? Because this whole thing is just laughably strange, except for the family annihilation part. I mean, that's real. So Chris never asked how his wife had been killed. Nor did he try to break crime scene tape to go see his family. Mm. That That is not just weird, Caroline. That's what you might call a clue, a big yeah, clue. I would think so. I, I mean, especially the ha- what happened. I mean, that would be all my brain would muster in terms of words. What is happening? What happened? What's going on? What happened? Like, I want to see my family. I want to see my kids. I don't understand why you would never ask anything. And I'll say I did watch a 48-hour special on this, and there is a lot of footage of him and, like, uh, recordings, the 911 recording. He's blubbering. I mean, he is just, like, <gasps> you know, really out of control. But knowing what we know, it just looks really gross now because he's like that, but he's not saying anything that a normal person would say. It's like you yeah. can tell now he just, well, yeah, why would he? he knows all the details? He knows more details yeah, than anyone else. he's blubbering because he's having to work a little bit harder than he would like to to well, right, at selling this get story. what he wants. So yeah. in a minute, we're going to find out what it is he wants. While sitting inside an ambulance, Chris noticed EMTs noticing the scratches on his arms. So instantly, he began to thrash his arms violently against a medical tray. In spite of Chris saying their marriage was really strong because of Christian counseling, Sherry had been telling her friends that if she turns up dead, Chris did it. Oh, poor Sherry. Yes, poor Sherry. If you ever find yourself in a situation telling your friends that it's your spouse or this person, you know, in your life, look, I've just, there's too many shows out there where that, everybody knows how that ends. Like, no. If you're telling your friend that, you should be saying, so can I stay with you while I leave? <laughs> like, I mean, you should be going back to someone you think is going to kill you. Absolutely. And I, I wish I knew what she was telling this counselor because the counselor would have training I would expect to recognize the duality that's going on behind the back of the counselor and behind the back of the employer and the parents and all that and at church and so forth and so on is a very dangerous sign of someone who is, is, you know, possibly uh, lethally dangerous. Right. So cops interrogated Chris eventually at the station and he kept telling the same story. They were alive when I left at 5.45 this morning, and I was worried about Sherry because she wasn't responding to my texts while I was at the gym. Our marriage wasn't great. He didn't realize that he would find, uh, in pretty short order, that he was the... Let me back up. Chris, in this uh, uh, interview with police, 
didn't realize that they, in very short order, were going to find out that he had been sexting and had for some time with a woman he knew as um, from high school. And her name was Tara. And uh, if that's not sick enough, Tara used to be a friend, best friend of Sherry from high school. So he's he's saying that I texted my wife and she would just not answer. But really what was going on is if he was sending texts, it wasn't going to be to Sherry unless he was faking something. It was going to be to Tara, his wife's best friend from high school. So he's carrying on this illicit texting or sexting sort of affair with this Tara woman who, who Tara knows Sherry as a best friend, either current or former from high school. That's just like, I mean, are you trying to like win the award for the least? I mean, this is cruel on, on every single level. I don't know how how did Sherry put up with any of this. This I don't either. And, you know, get ready to experience your gag reflex because the cops found sex tapes on both of their phones, Tara and Chris. And in fact, Chris uh, reminds me of Scott Peterson a little bit because Chris was sexting Tara whilst he was at his wife's funeral. Oh, my God. Okay, that's sick and twisted. Like, I just think it's sick. Not only that, Caroline, but nude photos of Tara and Chris were both on their phones, and one naked picture was on Chris's father's computer. What? Chris's father, the preacher? What? Uh, I have to assume Chris used that computer. Well, my brain wants to assume that Chris used that computer, and that's how that happened, but oh my gosh. (laughs) This is a perfect time to talk about Chris Coleman's mom and dad. Um, Remember, they were both evangelical preachers. When the father was confronted with the sex tapes, cheating, and a future plan his son had written down that was all about Tara, and, you know, they had a plan written down about, you know, they were going to be together, they were going to have a little girl, they were going to name her Zoe. Oh, my God. That kind of detail. All this mounting evidence of guilt, and they they presented that to Chris Coleman's father and got his reaction. And his reaction was, Tara was just meeting Chris's needs that Sherry wasn't meeting. Every man has desires, saith the father of a family annihilator. And when a man's wife is not responding and respecting him, he will have to go somewhere else for that. Okay. I have so many thoughts because this is a very, very common, not sure why it's not eradicated way of thinking. It's a, it's a male dominated way of thinking. And it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard because a bank robber has needs for money. And when the state won't respect his need for money, he's just going to go get it from the bank. Does that make sense? Nope. <laughs> so when a woman decides no, that's to the not, devil. The devil right. got into him. When, but when a woman decides that she is not emotionally connected enough to have sexual relations with a man, regardless of their status of friends, enemies, husband, wife, she's under no more obligation than he is to perform the things necessary in order for them to come back together to want to be physically intimate. And by that, I mean, 
you know, he just wants sex. Well, clearly Sherry wants commitment, non-lying, you know, all these other things, which you're not giving her. So are you saying she's supposed to go get a man who's going to do all that for her? Like yeah. it's a frustrating mentality. And I don't, it I is hate hearing it. I hear it a lot. It's really prevalent. You are entitled to no more or less than the person standing next to you for all the same logic you would try and throw out for yourself. So this doesn't work. I agree. And, you know, now remember back to the last time Sherry and Chris had sex. Uh, he told her how they were going to have it, uh, how minimized she would be in it. Right. And reminded her afterwards that this doesn't mean I love you. So now the father has another spin on it. As for the mom, uh, I almost want to say, don't get me started. I would like to do a podcast <laughs> on just her. But anyway, here's a highly, highly representative vignette that will tell the story from her point of view. When asked what it would take for her to consider that her, hunt, her son is a killer of his wife and two sons, she said, quote, I would lay down my life for Chris. He would have to tell me he did it for me to believe that he did. Now, Caroline, to me, I'm going to be a translator here. I, I, here's my translation. It would be better to be dead than have to face the world as the mother of a family annihilator. I would say that is the mask that she's wearing. And behind that mask is thoughts like, how can you do this to me, Chris? And I cannot be the mother of a family annihilator. That's not going to fly. Yeah. That, our congregation's not going to like that. Right. And so forth and so on. So very self-serving comment. Well, uh, and very I, pious. Very I think if she, I even disgusting. think though, if she, if Chris got to a place where he could admit that, which I don't think he ever could, she would still cling to but tell me more about how Sherry made you do that, right? I mean, yes. both of his parents are very open and willing to hear about how it was not his fault and external factors made him behave in morally reprehensible ways. Right, right. You know, Chris, we know it wasn't you. We know it was her. Tell us that she killed the boys and that you had to kill her. Uh, I mean, you know, anything other than this. Right. I'd right. lay down my life for Chris. Because I wouldn't want to live anymore if he if he told me that he had done this. Anyway, at trial, so many nails were driven into Chris's Chris Coleman's coffin because of these stupid things that he has done. Dr. Bodden, superstar pathologist, testified that Chris's family was murdered around 3 a.m. on May 9th. All the threats that came in to Joyce Meyer and the ones stuffed into Chris and Sherry's mailbox. All of these threats came from Chris's computer at work. Um, and, you know, Chris, aren't you supposed to be in security and know about cyber security? And, I mean, you know, you talk about somebody with blinders on and just thinking they're so, so right. Ordained by God to get what he wants when he wants it. Chris told investigators he had no red paint at his house. Uh, but his house had been graffitied all over the house in red. And some of it even got onto Derek's blanket. So, I mean, you know, close up. But police found a bank record showing that Chris bought the same paint a few days before the murder. Oh, Jeez. my God. The, 
Air's going to be your favorite poem, perhaps. <laughs> the misspelling of opportunity as O P P U R T U N I T Y was a mistake found over and over and over in all the documents Chris Coleman wrote at work. Oh, man. That's so dumb. he's at work and he can't do spell check? Well, and I just think about all the myths because, you know, people people rely on the news and, and general works to, to increase their vocabulary and spelling skills. So, you know, when you are pumping out pages and pages <laughs> the wrong stuff, I just, I mean, my God, this, the comedy of errors that, that ultimately led to this person's, you know, capture, thank God. But at the same time, like, it's just so violently stupid. Everything this person did. I mean, just violently stupid, stupid to pretend there's some, you know, threats out there and the spray paint, you know, and he spray painted on his child. Like this man murdered his children. And it's not just a murder like you shot them, strangled. He strangled each and every member of his family, which is the most horrific and intimate and violent way. And these are young kids. So I just, this man is as stupid as this opportunity mistake he did over and over and over again. It's just, it's frustrating. Yeah, he's missing a lot of major parts. I mean, he's just got something going on inside of him or I mean it's the old nurture versus nature what made him like this and the more I have thought about this case the more I wonder what does it do to a child both your parents are preachers they have a long large congregation large following everything that you do that is framed the way that your parents are having you frame it, uh, including the speaking of tongue, speaking in tongues and, and just being, maybe, you know, he was the quiet one. Well, maybe he was sensitive and maybe he at a very young age and maybe he began to, or was told that he is ordained by God yeah, to, go. And he will be, uh, these blessings will be manifest in him in such a way that he will always have what he wants when he wants it kind of thing. Somehow he became entitled in his own mind to live. And if that means that other people had to be robbed of their life, so that he could have the life that he wanted that was ordained by the God that they were worshiping. And so did he, did he get caught up in that during such a young age when his brain was developing that he wound up what I call missing some parts? Uh, he, he is missing empathy he would not be able to strangle someone to death who was no threat to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he could have perhaps worked it out with Sherry right. to have her file for divorce. Yes. 
to keep the job and they could have worked something out. They could have worked something out had he been forthright about his true nature and what he really wanted. And I just feel like that's what I mean when I say he's a monster. I'm sort of trying to call him out of what I would call a human being. Right. He, he, there's something lacking in humanity with this man. No, I agree. I think, uh, yeah, and I don't know what it is, and I don't want to, I mean, you know, I would be so quick usually to say it was the organization component of the religious, right? That's rigidity around religion, but I don't really think that that's it. I think, because I think you're right. I think that in a real, true, loving home, even one with rigid guidelines and boundaries, you can still have a conversation that this says, this is the reality of what I want. How are we going to make this happen within the confines of the, of the social structure we're in? Or, you know, what I, I mean, it's just peop, normal people who love each other. They think they do. They get to a point where they sit down, they figure it out um, and they compromise or whatever that looks like. But this guy, I just, you know, and honestly, I do encourage folks to try to find a photo because these, this family was beautiful. It's beautiful family. Like Sherry's beautiful. Her boys are beautiful. And so when you know what kind of, you know, like went down and what happened here, it's, I got a lot of anger for Chris, like a lot of anger because of the Mm -hmm. amount of stupidity he exudes and also what he did. I wonder what that marriage was like between his parents. Oh, what did question. he learn from that situation? Really good question. Certainly male dominated. We heard that out of the father's mouth. Yeah. Delusional because the mother, delusional. Gonna, you know, go yeah. with whatever. <sighs> delusional. Uh, the mother, certainly delusional. I'd rather, I would die for Chris. Yeah. And um, so she's got it in her head that. I'm dead, you know, I'm dead, yeah. I'm dead. And I, and for Chris, because of Chris. Right. But it came out, I would die for Chris. Right. And he'd have to tell me he did it before I would believe it. Is that a, a wish that she had it in some far corner of her mind? That I, why I, can't we just be honest for once? I don't know. I actually don't, th- I don't, th- I think that's a lie. I think her, I think her saying that was a lie. I think that's her having her own sense of what, Give the people what they want. This is what people want to hear out of my mouth. I'm never going to say that he did this. But if you made me, here's the criteria under which I might do it, right? I I don't believe her, though. I think if Chris Mm. even said it to her, she would still continue to go to him about, well, here's how that isn't really your fault, Chris. (laughs) Here's how that was Sherry or And here's the story that we're going to continue to tell until you're dead. That's Or I'm dead. Just or cause... your father's dead and I am dead too. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh family annihilators I, I they've been they've been studied and uh he appears to kind of fall into that category of family annihilator who he's either thinking that you know, I think he's thinking that this is the only way that I can get what I want. Yeah. And 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 they wouldn't want to live with the reality of a divorce anyway. So I'm going to kill them and I'm going to send them to heaven 
uh, where they'll actually be better off. Right. And so forth and so on. So do we know, do we have a perspective from Tara? I never heard anything or saw anything or was able to catch any insight into, I mean, I know that she was forthcoming with the police. So she was totally cooperative in this investigation. However, I have, because I know in the Chris, Chris Watts situation, it was the girlfriend who actually helped really connect all those dots. Thank goodness. And so what did Tara think? No, understand what was she told? All the things. I read somewhere in this uh, research that all I could glean from Tara was that she had no idea and the police were convinced that she had no idea of the plan that Chris had to annihilate his family. She had no idea of the hoax that he was perpetrating on Joyce Meyer Ministries in order to uh, create a scenario by which an intruder that annihilated his family would would uh, fit with previous clues and so forth and so on. And I never read anything that said that she was embarrassed or ashamed about, you know, her sex sexting and her uh, videos, sex videos coming out to the jury um, and all of that. And of course, everybody in the world who knows about this case knows about Tara. Yeah. But, you know, she's in a better position to escape the consequences of Chris Coleman. His parents certainly cannot escape it. Chris cannot escape it. Yeah. And the three people who are dead because of it are the only innocent parties here. Plus, there's a lot of collateral damage here too. I know I often talk about this, but the but the trauma reverberates a lot like the ripples on the water and it stays for a long time, if not forever. But the police officer across the street, he's found those bodies. Oh, he was traumatized, definitely. That is written about that he was he was I mean, uh yeah, he knew he knew early on that he had been used oh, and it, it um, got yeah, it was so bad. Yeah, I mean everything so bad. It was just so bad. But the police officer crossed the street. And what's worse is that camera caught some footage that is just, it makes it harder for the mind to figure this out or to put it in its place um, in the brain. Because the night before, the very day before this all happened, captured on that camera is Chris playing baseball with his two sons, playing catch. I mean, the, on the front yard, in the, on front, the front yard. So he would be seen. I guess. But I mean, that's the most quintessential American white picket fence kind of scenario you can paint. I'm in the front yard playing catch with my boys, you know, and then the next day he strangled those boys and created this whole fictitious scene, traumatized his police officer neighbor by having him be the first one to find it, you know, which I think was a part of the control aspect here. Otherwise, if you thought there was real danger, you dial 911. Even if you had a cop next door, you would dial 911 and you would say, I'm going to call my cop next door because I got a cop next door. Hang on. You know what I mean? Like you just. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think all of the officers officers and the EMTs that arrived at that house that day, uh, you know, I think they all probably had to go through a process to learn to live with the 
visions that are in their head. And I think that Chris staging, in my opinion, staging a little round of throw the ball to uh, my kids in the front yard, that that was done for the spectacle of what a great dad he is. Uh, He must be so heartbroken. But really, it it was part of the evidence against him because, number one, he had never done that before. And and number two, um, if he thought someone was a threat to him and his family and they knew where he lived, would he be going out in the front yard like that? Right. Good point. I mean, it's just Another, creepy. It's so awful and creepy and just the whole it thing is, is dying. Another another um another tidbit about this family. Um Gavin was spending the night with a friend and or wanted to, and he called his um home to see if he could spend the night. And uh his parents had always let him spend the night in the past when asked. But on the night before, the on May 8th, uh, the night before this annihilation, uh, the father had told the mother, nobody spends the night tonight out. So, uh, you know, he had a chance to escape uh, this killing, uh, but he was preemptively uh, robbed of that escape. And so that's just another evil, and you know I hate that word because it's it seems so religious, but it's monstrosity, yeah, dark demon person that Chris Coleman is. And so I'm very happy to tell our listeners that Chris Coleman was found guilty of all charges against each member of his family, and he's serving three murder convictions in the Illinois prison system which is uh, not good. I mean, you know, the Illinois prison system has been overhauled a lot, but I don't know what it's still like. And I certainly don't know what child killers are um, going through, but I hope it's bad. Anyway, uh, he's still in that prison, though, Caroline, screaming his head off about how guilty he is. You mean not guilty? He says and always maintains that his computer was hacked, and the only mistake he ever made in his life was seeing another woman, and that's all I did. <sighs> I just, I mean, you know, Chris Watts did the same thing. He all, he did the same thing. I mean, if you're going to be a family annihilator and you're going to murder your entire family and then you get painted into the corner and you're caught, like just own up to what you did. Like this person strangled two children that were his own children. Right. You can't get much worse in my brain than Well, at least that. Chris Watts owned up to what he did. We sort think. of. I sort mean, of. he still kind of blamed his wife in that she she murdered the kids and so I had to murder her. Yeah, no, no we he, have too much he took footage. that back later when he got closer to prison and pled guilty. But to, once you say that, you know, people are going to say, yeah. And now right. he's going back on it to be because he's such a good husband. It's just sick, sick, sick all sick. around. So, Caroline, do you think a man who has the name of his future child with Tara, the mistress, might be wanting to start his life over? And he was diligent in his planning, bad in his spelling, but he, he was just so bad at the consequences and thinking through how other people would perceive him 
this man who, as a child, was wild about the church where his parents preached so much that he was speaking in tongues, do you think that maybe he began to see himself as Jesus Christ? I mean, a guy who can walk across water and not drown? I mean, do you think that maybe he felt anointed, as I had said before, that he just felt like this is my destiny? I mean, he must have. I just think, you know, he was probably in a good position with um, his job. And yeah, I mean, he just felt like people weren't seeing him. I, I liken it to the toddler with the hands over the eyes, right? I mean, that I do think people struggle to shake that mentality. If I just oh, yeah. cover my face, if I can't see you, you can't see me. And I, right. I yeah. Think people believe. And it, that. I mean, you know, typically, you know, when we're stressed as adults, we do revert back to earlier and earlier chronologically in our life coping strategies. But I've going to admit, I've been in some stressful situations in my life and I've never uh, closed my eyes and like you just described a toddler does. And I don't know any, none of my people have ever done that or people I know, but maybe he just, it wasn't that big of a leap for him to revert to a toddler. Maybe he never got out of the toddler stage. Well, and I think other people, you know, you're in kind of a place where other people are willing to tell or support those slightly augmented narratives, right? The evidence oh, yeah. doesn't support it, but let's ignore that evidence for now. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they're, the spin that that people, you know, everybody has to put a spin on things sometimes at work. They've got to do what they can to salvage the situation and, and limit damages and then uh, do a cleanup and, and move past it and, and own it, uh, own up to it. But, you know, anyway, none of that happened here. We've got a lot of uh, rugs with a lot of dirt shoveled under it. And uh, that is the Chris Coleman story. And um, it's just sickening. It is. It's just absolutely sickening what a person like him will do. and it makes me wonder how many other family annihilators are they out there? Now, we've already tossed, talked about Ospaston House and the family annihilator there. And today we talked about Chris uh, Watts to compare to Chris Coleman. But Chris Coleman is a special kind of monster because he is filtering everything about himself through a lens called God's will. And that's a lie. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's damaging a lie. lie. It's very much in kin with, you know, manifest destiny. It's just kind of a destructive, can be very destructive. <laughs> it's magical thinking taken to a lethal level of toxicity on anybody who's drawn into that. So that's what we think about this wolf in sheep's clothing, this family annihilator, Chris Coleman. So... Today's episode is researched, written, and narrated by Bridget and Caroline, produced by Andy. Our research is solely based on public domain documents, including legal documents, articles, and books about our subject. Episodes are aired every other week. If you like us, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. It really does help. Tell your friends about us in person and by social media. All these actions help new listeners find us, which we want. Thank you, and we appreciate you. And finally, 
don't forget to live and let live. Well, bye-bye, Caroline. Bye-bye.